beginning of the chapter, Jesus had taught on marriage and divorce. And then uh, as he continues through the process, he talked about the children that he welcomed and accepted into his presence. And uh, that actually plays over that idea of what he said about accepting the kingdom or receiving the kingdom as a child. It plays over very strongly into this next encounter with the rich young ruler, beginning in verse 17, where it says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him. So interesting, right? So urgency in the approach and humility in the encounter. He kneels down uh, before Jesus. You would think, right, uh, based upon these physical characteristics that he was surrendered to the Lord. He's going to say uh, through the process that he is, but then we see his heart revealed before it's done. So he comes with all the right postures, running, kneeling uh, before him, meaning Jesus, and asked him, good teacher, now, uh, Jesus is going to address the issue of good teacher, but I just want to put on the front end, that was very uncommon in the Jewish culture, almost unheard of, to refer to anyone as good, and especially to refer to teachers as good, because they're trying to teach the Bible and teach the law, and they have this mindset that only God is good, right? They, they, they hold with that attitude of humility from the scripture so they so they steer away from that be it out of sincerity or some sense of false humility you know they 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 aren't commonly you know accustomed to using this term and just throwing it around so the fact that he comes and presents that right in the front end in this culture at this time is an oddity it isn't normal so good teacher what shall I do? Okay, there's another theme in the whole discussion. What can I do? How, how do I, what are the works I can do? What are the things I can do, right, that I may inherit eternal life? How do I save myself, right? For those of us that are good New Testament students, we know you can't. There's nothing you can do, right? Uh, you can submit yourself to Jesus Christ who will save you. His grace saves you. But it isn't what you're doing. right? It isn't that you did a certain number of things, took a certain number of steps, accomplished certain levels of work, and therefore God finally puts his stamp of approval on you. <laughs> Frankly, you're a dirtbag and Jesus saved you. That's That's what it is. You do not deserve this. It doesn't matter how good you are. So, so his approach, while it seems right and sincere, it's completely out of tune with who the Lord is, what his character is. So the presentation often tricks us. The presentation we get from people, the presentation we try to present to people is often out of touch and out of tune with God and who he is. What shall I do? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? So this is the backstory. Why, why are you calling me good? And uh, it's not so much the sense that Jesus is saying no one is good or 
I'm not good. It's a matter of, hey, are you paying attention to what you're saying? You, you have recognized something about me that is commonly steered away from by our culture and our religious teachers. Why, why are you calling me good? That, you know, what he's saying is this should be ringing a bell in your head, kid. You, you know, you should be realizing there's something far more significant about me than the common teachers of our day, than the religious leaders of our day. Hey, you've hit on something. You've struck. Yes. <laughs> Let me confirm for you. In other words, is what he's, yeah, you've nailed it. You're right. I'm good. Uh, I alone am good. He, he's giving him an indirect confirmation of, hey, by the way, I'm God, right? If you think that's stretching it too far, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, you've got to understand how powerful a position that is, right? Uh, Seventy men were the oversight for the entire nation of Israel. Nicodemus is one of them. Comes John chapter 3 in the middle of the night to address Jesus, which was actually a common practice. And in so doing, he says, right, one, he addresses him as rabbi. So here's a man who's a ruler of the Jews. Everyone's beneath him as far as his countrymen goes. And he elevates Jesus to the position of saying, you're capable of teaching me. I'm a ruler of the Jews, but I come to you and I address you as rabbi. And he says, we know, we know. So he's using his official position of confession to say, we know that you are sent from God. No one could do the works that you were doing unless he was sent from God, is what Nicodemus says. So this is a common experience with Jesus and the people of the day. The realization of, hey, there is a God presence here. There, there, is, there is an attribute to this man that so eclipses all other men and all other religious men that we put titles like this upon him, good teacher. Jesus is confirming that. No one is good but one, that is God. He, this, isn't, this isn't Jesus backing away from it. This is Jesus embracing it, saying, are you aware of what you're saying? Are you paying attention? Since no one is good except for God, you've come to the realization that I am good. Make the equation is the encouragement that he's giving him here. Again, that dwelling on the issue of what can I do? This is the theme of where we're going here. Jesus says in verse 19, you know the commandments, right? Every good Jew would know the commandments, right? Even if they were people who had drifted from their religious roots and their upbringing in their adulthood, right? Matthew betrays the nation of Israel goes and takes a job as a tax collector with the enemies of Israel serving Rome. He knows in his heart and mind the things of God, the things of the Scripture, the things of their religion. So Jesus is addressing this man as a good Jewish adult, male, saying, you know the commandments, Right? He's not just talking about Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments there. He's talking about an entirety of the law. He shrinks it down for the guy to the simplicity of the Ten Commandments. 
and he's going to address him very directly on that level. But the statement, you know the commandments, is broad. You, you were raised in this. You understand. You've had people like that, right? If you, if you drifted from the Lord and you were out in the world and doing things and you come across somebody and certain things they're saying, you're like, uh, you're from the faith. <laughs> you, got, you have a background. Something is telling me, you know, in the South, uh, you know, we were just in Georgia and you know, they are so steeped in the Bible all the time that you hear it everywhere, everywhere common for people as their parting ways to say have a blessed day yeah really i mean do you mean that yeah we say judeo-christian ethic yeah right uh, this nation is grounded in that there's an up-and-coming culture within it that knows nothing of the scripture you'll hear certain statements and tones and things that will you know, give you the sign and the indication, the tell that they are of the faith. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Very gracious of Jesus, right? And he stays away from the depth because what he does is quote what we call the second table of the law. He's addressing how we treat one another. Now, he doesn't start out with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Because everyone just needs to turn on their heels and walk away. You know what I'm saying? Because you know we, we all have idolatry sown into our hearts from Adam. Uh, so you know the issue of the heart, Jesus just goes right to the shallow approach of where this man is actually at. All of the outward appearance of things. Um, he addresses him from a position that the religious community had created a method by which they could do all of these things, right? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount addresses those exact same issues and says, for instance, even if you haven't committed adultery if you've lusted after someone in your heart then you've already committed adultery he takes it much deeper into the condition of the heart and says if your heart is in a sinful condition then you are already sinning whether you've actually carried that out and performed those acts or not you are currently presently living in that sin the sin is in your heart you are by nature corrupt and sinful Instead, Jesus keeps it, as I said, right in the shallow end where this guy has a confidence to say, yeah, that's where I'm at. Don't think of it as smug. Jesus is actually trying to win this guy over. He, he's going to say in just you know, a verse and a half or so here that he loves this man. Jesus is trying to pull him in. Think of Peter denies Jesus Christ three times. And then at the end of the book of John, he meets Peter, swims ashore, has breakfast with him, and that whole restoration encounter, Jesus you know, says to Peter, do you love me? And any of us that have studied the original language, uh, he uses those terms of agape and phileo, unconditional love and friendship. He asks Peter, 
do you uh, love me unconditionally? And Peter replies, you know we're friends. Feed my sheep. Uh, do you love me unconditionally? Uh, we're friends. Feed my sheep. And then Jesus brings it down and says, are we friends? And Peter has to then say, well, basically, I'm the modern vernacular. He says, basically, you know better than me. He says, Lord, you know all things. Right? Because Peter made bold claims previously about how I'll die at your side. And he tried to. Ripped out the sword, chops off Malchus's ear. He tries to go out in a blaze of glory. But when Jesus says wrong method and shuts him down, right? Peter does that, flares up in big moments of, you're the Christ. Oh, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit. Hooray, I'm the hero. And then moments later, rebuke Jesus. You're not going to be allowed to, you know, submit yourself to the cross and sacrifice. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. I don't know if you've ever had the wind taken out of your sails like that, where you jump right up and raise your hand and say, I have the correct answer, and everybody goes, well done. And then you jump up a moment later and make a fool of yourself. Yeah, and you shrink. Peter hacks off Malchus's ear, and then moments later, a little girl is saying, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying something to the nature of, may God strike me dead if I know the man. You know, when it says that he cursed and renounced him, it literally pronounced a curse as he renounced him. And the scripture is faithful to tell us that at that moment, they brought Jesus out and he made eye contact with him. Have you, have you ever experienced that? Maybe you haven't. I have. Where you're right in the middle of running your mouth and then there's the confrontation. Cut to the heart. See, Peter's completely reduced, and then Jesus completely restores. Love me unconditionally? We're friends. Love me unconditionally? We're friends. Are we actually friends? Well, I guess you know. Then feed my sheep. Be a shepherd to the sheep that I'm creating in the flock in the body of Christ. Right? Yeah, we're, fr yeah, we're friends. I guess I don't know if we're friends. I'll restore you, even if you can't get over your own self-esteem issues. I want you to serve me. Even if you're going to drag your knuckles through the rest of life, this whole psychological issue of, oh, you just need to think better of yourself. Maybe not. Maybe you don't need to think better of yourself. Maybe you need to swallow the humble pill for the rest of your life. But the call is the same on your life. Feed the sheep. Serve the flock. Serve your king in the process. This man meets this rich young ruler where he's at. He, he goes right down to his level. Oh, I see you're swimming in the shallow end. Well, let's deal with it here then. Let's go with Have you kept all of these commandments? Yes, I have. Yes, I am capable of doing these things. He answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my since I was a kid. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Were you a teenager? Did you go through that period of time? Because I suspect that that's not entirely true. Right? I suspect that you have, in fact, 
wrestled with these things. I'll remind us, I quoted Jeremiah 17.9 this morning, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Everyone's heart. We're all corrupt. It's the grace of God again. 10.21, then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, looked at him and loved him, Boy, you read the following verse and you can almost think that Jesus is looking at him like, nah, I know where you're really at and let me just have it recorded by the Holy Spirit for all of eternity in God's word. (laughs) That's not where Jesus is at. He loves this man. Okay, now really embrace this. Pull this into your own Heart. Jesus really loves you where you are at. Where you're at. He doesn't have a standard where he's saying, oh, I'm going to love you someday. You're not even going to believe it. Once you get your act together, I'm going to be so on your team. <laughs> he loves you right now where you are at. Yes, yes, he wants more for you. He wants change. He wants maturity and progress, but he loves us right now, right? If you've read this, you know that this guy then fails miserably in just, you know, a few more words, but Jesus loves him. This is the heart of our king. Gracious, kind, merciful, generous, benevolent. Add all the good adjectives you can to it. This is our God. He loves us, right? It's not as some apply, you know, uh, sloppy, agape, they'll even call it, right? There is, an, there is an accountability. There is a level. There is a standard. But you've got to understand God embraces you as you are, you filthy, rotten sinner. He loves you, right? And that old thing, right? He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way, right? He wants us to change. He wants progress. But you really got to embrace. You got to go home and lay your head on the pillow tonight in the full assurance that Jesus Christ loves you and accepts you as you are presently. That's, That's how he is. What a gracious God. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have. Everything. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross, and follow me. Listen, um, you know, it's hard to put this in modern vernacular. Sell everything you have, give it to the people that are truly in need, and then make arrangements for your lethal injection. Gas chamber, electric chair, firing squad. Your, your public humiliation of execution. That's, that's what, that's, that's, you want to be my follower? You feel like you're missing something? He feels like he's missing something, right? The whole thing starts with the knowledge that he's making the confession. I don't have eternal life yet. I have not achieved eternal life yet. Jesus is saying very gently, you're right. You're missing the point altogether. You ran with urgency. You knelt down. You've kept all of these religious rules your entire life. Jesus doesn't contradict him. Right. You're hitting it out of the park. But you're missing 
the whole thing. <laughs> David Gusick in his commentary gave a great illustration. He said, this man has climbed the ladder of success better than anyone else around him, only to discover in the end that he leaned his ladder against the wrong building. How many people do that? Jesus confronts him. Give everything you have away. Come take up your cross. Follow me. But he was sad at his words and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus just showed this man the God he was actually worshiping was money. He had no idea. He thought he was a follower of God, and Jesus just reached straight inside his heart and ripped it wide open for him and said, take a look at that. <laughs> and the guy was com completely disheartened. But notice, notice, unrepentant, brokenhearted, filled with sorrow, and yet unrepentant. That's tragic. That is tragic, right? Paul tells us that the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Listen, you want to really think your way through that verse because it's not saying if you're filled with sorrow, you are in fact repentant. That's not what it's saying. You can have more sorrow from worldly sorrow than, than, than godly sorrow will generate. Your godly sorrow might not even look all that dramatic to people that are looking on from the outside. The dramatic effect of godly sorrow is repentance. Turn around. Go 180 degrees the opposite direction. Sorrow, in a godly sense right here, would have caused this man to sell everything he had right there in this moment. It happened on a couple of occasions during Jesus' ministry, right? Zacchaeus. If I've taken from money anyone in an unrighteous manner, I'm paraphrasing, I'll give back to them double. Done. Clear the slate. I've been a creep. You're right. Let's straighten it out right now. He fixes the whole thing. True sorrow produces, godly sorrow rather, not true sorrow because you can have true worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance. A total change in behavior. Ungodly behaviors disappear, godly uh, behaviors appear. That, that's what the Lord is looking for. The turnaround, the metanoia, the, the changing of the mind. Right? Going one to, in its most basic form, uh, repentance literally means that, to go the opposite direction. Just to turn around, go the opposite direction. It, it, it pertains to the mind, which then pertains to the behavior. This man just crushed. How many times uh, did you go through that as you were coming to repentance? Right, you, Your sin and the way you live brought you to a place of brokenness and utter sorrow. And brokenness and utter sorrow. And, and the ones that have been in the worst depths of that, every time I talk to them, they tell me, like it was for me, that death and suicide were part of the thought process. 
overwhelmed. Judas's plan starts to look like a real option. Go out and hang yourself. Go out and kill yourself. You know, even if you don't have that motivation, you know, start wishing for death. Start wishing that just, I wish I could just die. I don't know how many times I've heard people say that. I wish I didn't have to live anymore. Yes, filled with sorrow. Worldly sorrow produces death in the thought, in the life, and then ultimately in the behavior. You know, don't want to actually commit, but just start living in ways I don't care. I'm going to just consume all these drugs. I'm going to have sex with whoever I want to. I'm going to just eat whatever I want to, drink whatever I want to. I don't care if it's destroying me. The behavior is suicidal. It's a slow motion suicide, but it's suicidal. Takes years to accomplish it, but the finality of the thing, right? It filled with sorrow all along the way. I just hate myself. Uh, listen, you know, to that end, I've mentioned it a couple times now, psychology is sort of finding the pulse of the problem here is self-esteem. Right, they hate themselves. They hate themselves because what they're doing perpetuates that. Godly sorrow produces repentance, the turnaround. This man, no turnaround at all. He is just overwhelmed. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus speaking, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, literally money. Can't do it. This man thought that he was serving God. All these commandments I've kept all my life. Big deal. The God you're serving is money, which... Listen, you don't have to adjust the focus very much to realize, oh, it's actually self. He's worshiping self. You know, his pursuit of money, wealth, all these different things, is just the pursuit of self. Whenever self is on the throne, it's destroying everything. It's destroying, now taking contrast, what Jesus is about to say about you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you've got to become the servant of everybody. Right? He just got done saying you got to embrace the kingdom like a child. Rich, young ruler, you know, the Holy Spirit orchestrates, and this is the example I'm speaking of, and now let's talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. So, uh, you know, you look at this whole thing, uh, the work, right? He started out with that statement, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What work shall I do? Jesus gave the answer to that. The sense of what we have in our heart of, I got to work, I got to do something. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's the work. It seems cheap, doesn't it? Right? Because everything else we've earned in life required so much effort. All, all it takes is for you to surrender in believing in Jesus. My mom and I, uh, riding over here tonight, we're just having a conversation about a man who's been part of our lives for years, and we, we love him to death. And uh, we've tried to help him over and over and over again, and he just refuses to surrender to Jesus Christ. If, if you asked him, he would tell you without question, yes, I, I'm a Christian, I am surrendered 
to Jesus Christ. And the point we talked about is he, he wants a Savior. He recognizes the wretchedness of his life. He recognizes all the benefits of Jesus. He wants that, but he will not submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in his life. Jesus Christ does not run his life. You, you know, I mean, he's got all kinds of sinfulness in his life. You even try to, as a loving brother, humbly approach one of those things and say, well, what about this? Have you ever considered, like, what are you going to do about this? Total flare-up, freak-out, absolute animosity. You know, he'll attack you from every direction. Unsubmitted to the Lord. It needs to be that those things work together, that the work we do is submitting to Jesus Christ, the one whom the Heavenly Father sent. So in verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the, and the disciples were astonished at his words. Listen, you would think that what they just witnessed would have been a very convincing experience to them. But we are just accustomed to reading this over and over again, right? You think about our culture. Our culture has a very similar frame of mind. If someone has a lot of money, a lot of possessions, a lot of worldly goods, the concept is they must be doing good. They're being blessed by God. They're probably more Christian than the rest of us. And what you'll discover, right, even in you know church settings, is very often uh, they've had to profoundly neglect their relationship with the Lord in order to acquire those things. It's a dangerous prospect to associate money with godliness. It's a really foolish endeavor. Consider what the Lord is saying to this young man right here and the fact that the disciples missed the point altogether. I think the, the body of Christ misses the point altogether very often also. They see situations like this transpire and they don't get it all. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children. Oh, oh, the Holy Spirit made sure that that word was included. He just got done talking about children. Now, children, right? They're trying to drive the children away. Jesus says, what are you doing? Let the kids come to me. You're not even going to see the kingdom unless you enter it like a child, right? Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. They're assuming that wealth was always a sign of God's blessing and favor. That's what they're presently doing. Now, I want to confront us a little bit, at least. Compared to this rich young ruler, each one of us enjoys more luxuries and comfort than he did. Consider, that's an absolute truth, right? I've, I've shared it with you before. You can do the research on your own. If you've ever had spare change in your life, you're in the top 10% of the wealthy in the world. The rest of the world is so impoverished, they've never had one spare coin in their entire lives. In their entire lives. 
I always give the statistic that a family of four in Vietnam lives in a one-room shack, very often with, without a door. Their entire family's income is less than $1,400 a year, four people. They usually eat one or two cups of rice, depending on the size of the family, and right around four to six ounces of protein, be it eggs, fish, or meat, a day. That's the entire family's consumption for their lives, right? I had a friend that said to me once, yeah, I know what that's like. I was worried about being hungry one time, right? I mean, isn't that, I mean, that, I mean, they were saying that tongue in cheek, but that's sort of the epitome of like, when, when were you ever really hungry in your life? You know what I'm saying? Like, you could probably go, you know, days <laughs> without eating and, and, and be just fine, you know. We have to consider the confrontation Jesus puts out and what it means to us, how to apply that to ourselves. Riches can make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for the age to come. Rather than looking for something deeper and more meaningful, we find a contentment here. It was back, you know, in this whole thing, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus said even earlier in this chapter, in verse 15, Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter. Children need to be provided for. Adults who are wealthy do not. Do we approach the kingdom that way? Hands out, you know, desiring, needing, right? You know, maybe the Lord has made us wealthy, and, and that's for his purposes, to use for his kingdom. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? You will be filled, but if we're pursuant of the things of the earth like the rich young ruler, we can miss the point altogether. He takes it even deeper in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Just like it sounds, ignore the ridiculous attempts to redefine this. You know, this isn't a gate next to the main gate of the city where they had to take all the load off a camel and get it down its knees and make it crawl through. No, no. He's literally talking about the largest mammal in Mesopotamia. Biggest animal they see on a regular basis, the camel, and the eye of a sewing needle. You know what I'm saying? I mean, which end of the camel are you going to start with? To try and get him through that, you know what I'm saying? Just the tail and just, oh, yeah, wind it up real tight. And, you know, yeah, get on this with me, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not going to happen. He's using a humorous illustration to make this just stick in their heart. For all of those people you might have grown up in churches hearing try to make this some other explanation, that is false. False. The, the correct understanding is literal camel, little needle, literal needle. Not gonna happen. Absolute that that is why you get the reaction that you get in verse 26. They were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? 
right? Not, not, not in regard to the eye of the needle. They have it so fixed in their mind that the wealthy are the people who are, you know, the religious elite, the accomplished believers, the ones we should all follow, right? If they're having a Bible study and somebody that's wealthy is there and they start to talk, whatever they say, that's who they start listening to and following. You only do that if their doctrine is correct, right? I've met incredibly wealthy people who are unthinkably godly, unthinkably godly, super humble, only want to serve the kingdom, you know, just want to pour all their resources into missionary work and Bible printing and churches and, and they just want to see the kingdom grow they just want to see the kingdom grow they don't care if you're from another church down the road they hear what you're doing they want to get involved they want to help they don't even want to be recognized you don't have to put their name on the plaque you don't have to name the building after them they just want to make sure the kingdom grows i've met a few people like that what a blessing what a blessing that somebody actually understands uh, what the Lord is doing. Jesus looked at them, verse 27, and said, with men it is impossible. Listen, if this was some illustration that all these Jews understood, oh, there's a gate behind, this is what's commonly taught, that there was a gate, there was a door within the main gate of each city called the eye of the needle, or there was a small door beside the gate of each of the cities uh, that, you know, once they'd shut the gate of the main gate of the city at night. If you came in, uh, you were able to unload your camel and then you'd have to get the camel to crawl through on his knees. It was a very difficult process. And then you have to carry all of the load in through. If that's what Jesus was talking about, all of these disciples would have been, oh yeah, I know how hard that is. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen people have to do that. What a pain in the butt. They would have responded. They are blown away. And Jesus says, with men, this is impossible. He doesn't say, oh, you know what I'm talking about, how hard it is. He says, no, it's impossible. Why? Because we're talking camel and needle. Can't do it. Doesn't work. Riches and the kingdom of God are opposed to one another. And they become idolatrous in the heart, and they destroy the life of the believer. Money is an incredible tool in the hands of our king. It is an unbelievably cruel master when it rules your life. You have to find yourself submitted to the Lord, not the money. Jesus looked at them with men. It's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. God's grace is sufficient enough to save even a rich man. Right? He can do it. He has done it. There are people. Zacchaeus, I mentioned. Right? Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was buried in his tomb. Right? Nicodemus. Wealthiest man in Jerusalem, according to Flavius Josephus. Incredibly wealthy. And, of course, Barnabas, right, sells his property and brings all of the proceeds to the apostles that they can build the kingdom of God. There were wealthy people. There's a few names contained in the scripture. 
Verse 28, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. <laughs> you know, it's basically, hey, 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 wait a minute. It feels like you're confronting us. We've left everything, and that is actually a true statement. Right? When you're reading Peter, James, John, Andrew, these men, fishermen, and it says, and they left their father and their boats, plural, and their servants, their employees, they walked away from one of the most lucrative industries of their communities, fishing. They had a fishing business right, that they were doing well with, apparently. We know at least Peter had a wife, right? His mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. They've left families. They've left wealth. They've left business. Okay, maybe they were only upper middle class, but they were doing okay. These weren't just guys rummaging around in the dumpster and Jesus came along and said, okay, fine, come follow me. They, they did leave substantial lifehood and walk away to follow Jesus Christ. So here we followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with uh, persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first so a few things to consider in this right uh, there are those that incorrectly teach literal hundredfold giving you give a dollar right now, Jesus is going to give you back a hundred. Uh, not necessarily. Okay? It isn't what Jesus is saying. Uh, should we expect, if this is literal, that uh, the man who has left one child will have a hundred children? One wife, you'll have a hundred wives? One husband, you'll have a hundred husbands? Ladies, how torturous would that be, right? Imagine the mess. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. right? A <laughs> hundred husbands? You've got to be kidding me. A hundred wives, a hundred mothers. No, what he's saying is whatever you've left, you're going to be repaid in abundance. Abundance. Uh, one of the greatest examples that I have seen in this, uh, a man that served next to me, for many years, passed away. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But uh, Paul uh, forsook a lot of things in order to come here to this church and serve this body here. And uh, he became a um, sort of dad to me. He became a sort of grandfather to my children, you know. My father passed away when I was four years old, so I grew up without a dad, and my kids grew out grew up without that grandfather, and he became, you know, they referred to him as Papa Paul, you know. There were many occasions where that man was in my house for his birthday, in my house for the holidays, and he would just start crying, and he would say, 
God has repaid me. God has repaid me. And I think, you know, most of us know what that's about. The way that we have given up certain things and in the moment it feels like, how am I ever going to let go of this? How in the world am I going to lose this? And in the process, the Lord brings us the fulfillment in abundance in his family, in his kingdom. Guys, the joy we've experienced here on earth at the Lord's fulfillment of these things is going to be so ridiculously eclipsed when we are in his presence. We are going to be floored with the joy and the overwhelming richness of God's glory and how it's applied to us. I long for it. And listen, I think it's right around the corner. The stuff that's going on. Are you guys watching? Uh, we're going to have, um, uh, we we do a prophecy update uh, on uh, uh, New Year's Eve. We come together here at the church, sing some songs, look at the word, talk, share with one another about the things that are going on in the world. Are, are you aware that right now around the world there is such tyrannical effort to remove people's freedoms? To uh, uh, The Netherlands are exploding. Uh, Austria yesterday said they are going to forcibly vaccinate 100% of their citizens. Imagine the chaos that's going to create. Imagine, you guys, the, the, the riots, the chaos. And, and you know, the media is acting like, can you believe these people? Yes, yes, I can. You know, I, when, when, when you are literally taking steps, uh, you know, that, that remove everyone's freedom, literally telling people your job doesn't exist anymore. You can't go to work. You can't go to children. No, children cannot go to school. Yeah, shutting everybody down. Man, it's it's going to come down to there. There is a group. I do not encourage this. I don't endorse this. Please don't do this. There's a group here in the states that have started wearing armbands with a yellow star on it, not the star of David, but a yellow star that says unvaccinated. Right. Because this is the mentality we're moving towards. Tell me that our Lord is not soon in the return. We are, we are nearing this, the, the fulfillment, the things that we've suffered in this life repaid to us by our King. What a, what a wonderful thought that is. Uh, you know, the Lord caring for us in this way. <clears throat> so, I left off... We've got a few more minutes here. Uh, left all hundredfold. So uh, I'll just 30 again. Uh, who shall not receive a, a hundredfold now in this time? Houses, brothers. And then uh, we, uh, the persecutions, the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Um, sometimes commentators uh, offer some explanations to that that I think are a little... Uh, out of kilter with the passage, shall I say? Um, he's he's telling them uh, that there's great reward for them. They're going to have positions of authority in his kingdom. 
uh, you know, uh, you consider Second uh, Timothy two twelve. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So reigning and ruling with him. The apostles have the great honor of being uh, the foundation of our faith. Uh, Paul, Ephesians chapter two verse twenty, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. They also have great honor in the new Jerusalem when it arrives. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. Now the wall of the city had the 12 foundations, and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, you know, there's, there's great reward in all of these things. That statement, uh, many who are first will be last, uh, is more or less to say, uh, you're going to receive these things, but it's going to be in God's measure and God's timing. Okay, uh, you know, sometimes people read that and they get all out of uh, sorts with what they think they're going to receive or what they think that means uh, to the kingdom. So I think that there are a couple of places that lend us some insight. One in particular, Matthew chapter 20, you might want to make note of it right there next to uh, verse 31, uh, verses 1 through 16, it is uh, the teaching of the laborers in the vineyard, how he goes out and finds the people in the morning in the marketplace and he hires them and sends them into the vineyard with the agreement that they're going to receive a denarius and then later and they're going to receive a denarius and later still and even later and then like right at the late before you know the closing bell. He goes out and hires more, sends him in for the final hour of work in the day. And then he begins the process of paying them from the people that he hired last so that the people who were hired first get to see the people who were hired last get paid. And he's handing everyone a denarius. And as you know, the people who were hired last are getting a denarius the guys that were hired first thing in the morning start ribbing one another. Like, dude, we're going to be loaded. You know, if the guys that only worked one hour get a denarius, we've been here all day. Imagine what our paycheck's going to be like. And then in verse 10, when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more money, and they likewise received each a denarius. Then in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 20, he answered one of them who was complaining, Friend, am I, do I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to those last man the same as to you. It is, not, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? Ooh, that, that's, a, that's a sharp. Barb that Jesus puts in there, right? Because their eye is evil. They're saying harsh things. Because I am good, so the last will be first, the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Back to Mark 10, verse 31. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. I'm going to pay everybody the same. What does God's pay? Uh, you know, often it's, it's not about the paycheck we receive now. It's all about the retirement plan. That's how I say you know, the grace of God gives you entrance into his presence for eternity. And that, that, that's the paycheck right there. What's the paycheck? The grace of God. It's, it's, it's delved out to everyone equally. Yes, the apostles are going to have honor, right? But I think 
uh, I think that within that, there's actually the thing that God is encapsulating that says we're going to automatically give them honor. You know, if I get the opportunity to shake Peter's hand, Paul's hand, and say thank you very much for 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 not only all that you did but all that you suffered. Thank you so much for recording the things you did. You know, I, I am going to chew out the guys on the road to Emmaus who didn't bother to record any of that Bible study. You know, Jesus walked with them all the way on the road and explained to them uh, every place in the scripture that pertained to, to him beginning in Genesis un, until, you know, Malachi. And they didn't record one syllable of it. You know, I just want to There's reward for those who have gone ahead of us. And think about this. There's reward for us and the things that we're doing. And, and you'll you'll be astonished at the way you affect people. You will be astonished at the way you affect people. You know, I, I just got a text message from a young man uh, who's now living down in Florida who was part of my youth group in uh, the mid and late 90s when I was a youth pastor. And uh, he, he was one of those guys where, you, you know, you sort of watch him trail off into life, and you're left thinking, like, boy, I wonder how that's going to turn out, <laughs> you know. And uh, he sent me a message telling me that he's now very actively involved in his church, and he's leading a Bible study, and the Lord is using him in all kinds of ways. And he's pointing back at me and saying, it's because of you and what you implanted in my life when I was a teenager, which I, I had no idea any of that was going on. It's a trip, the way that the Lord rewards us and gives us these things. So uh, 10 minutes, verse 32, now they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed as they followed. They were afraid. Uh, then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Now, what he says actually pertains to why they're afraid, but they're already afraid because of what he has already predicted to them. He's told them that he was going to be betrayed. Mark chapter 8, so we're in 10, two chapters earlier, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. They don't like walking in the direction that they're walking because they know they're headed towards this conflict. And they're amazed that Jesus is walking with the confidence. You know, it's almost like you want to jog up beside him and say, did you mean those things you said earlier? Because you're walking with such confidence towards Jerusalem. Like, are they literally going to torture you and do the terrible things because they are like shouldn't we be going to another town shouldn't we be headed in another direction there's an intimidation in this and the fear is growing in their hearts the confidence of jesus christ moving towards the conflict is admirable and while the confession of their fear sort of pulls some of that admiration away from the disciples, the fact that they continue to follow sort of adds it back, right? You know, we talk about bravery a lot of times, and 
you know, the, cl the cliche does fit. You know, bravery is not the absence of fear. It's, it's doing what is right, even though you are afraid. Uh, that's going to become more and more necessary for all of us with every passing day. The intimidation is going to continue to grow. So uh, the 12, uh, he took the 12 aside again, began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Listen, that's a like the, the air gets sucked out of the room when he says that. They're just like, what? You know, betrayed to the Gentiles? I mean, a hatred of the Jews, the you know, the religious establishment. Okay, fine. You know, you have flipped over their money tables. You are flying in their face all the time. You do pronounce the woes upon them. Sure, those guys are going to hate you. You're going to be turned over to the Gentiles? You're actually going to be betrayed to that degree? That's a big deal for them. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. The third day he will rise again. That statement in 34, the mocking, the scourging, the spitting, uh, it's uh, interesting that the early church considered it a great honor to be identified with Jesus by mockings and beatings. That, that, was, that was like stand up and cheer moment for, for them. Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41. And they agreed with him when he had called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame for his name. Worthy to be persecuted. Oh man, uh, the American church... To, to them, that's the ultimate failure. If the world hates us, we just shrivel up. <laughs> the world is supposed to hate us. And it is a great travesty that we are raising a generation of Christians who are trying to win the favor of the world. I'm not talking about going out and being offensive. That's easy to do. Just, just go out and be yourself, you know. It's easy to offend the world. I'm talking about truly living for Christ and it being an offense to the world that you walk in righteousness and live according to the will of your Heavenly Father. You know, if you will stand up and call homosexuality a sin. You know, in this culture, the world just freaks out about these things. You know, if, if you say that a man dressing as a woman is still a man. The world freaks out about these things. If, if you say that drug addiction is a choice, not an illness, the world gets gravely offended with you. We uh, need to be an offense to the world. Need to be in order to correct them. To correct them. I've been on a handful of construction sites over the years doing framing and different things. And it's interesting how carpenters will sometimes think that their opinion equals truth. You know, 
How's that look to you? Pretty good. When I stand right here, it looks okay. Yeah. Well, how about we get a level? No need. <laughs> no, there's a profound need to measure according to a true standard. Put the level up against it. Oh, wow, we're way out. <laughs> we're going to have to cut all of this off and move it over and get it plumbing. you got to have the, the standard of truth. I did steel buildings uh, for years, and when you put up a steel building, those girders, uh, you have to have some really huge levels, right? Put on that and let it measure over 10 feet, you know, what is plumb and what is not. Well, we had one level that one of the guys backed around with a skid steer, and he just struck it. And it was like a few occasions of using that level before we began to realize, oh, this thing is damaged. Because you put it on and you like tension everything up and then you come back later with, you know, the boss will come back later with another level and put it on there and be like, who plumbed this wall? Yeah, I did. You know, and then you bring the other level over and he's got his and you got yours. And you're like, look, it looks great. And he puts his up and it's like, it's way off. And so then we go through this big thing, right, because this level is so expensive of, okay, it's actually, look, I put it on this way, and it's fine. I flip it around this way, and it's way out of level. So this side of the level is bad. So now somebody's smart enough, oh, okay, we'll get a Sharpie, and we'll write on it, and we'll mark it, right? Well, in their infinite wisdom, put all the arrows pointing to this side and write bad. Well, does that mean this side is bad? Or does that mean this side is bad? Use this side. And so, and so in the end, after we've done this like a gajillion times, I asked my boss, I know this thing is expensive, but can we throw this away? Can we throw this away? And he was finally like, yes, we can. It's way expensive, but throw away. The world is measuring according to the wrong tools, you guys. The opinions of men. Hey, this is fine. That's fine. That's marriage. That's marriage, you know. Just redefine everything, right? This is love. That's love. No. No. The Word of God. We need to embrace the idea that we're going to be an offense to the world. Again, not because you're a professional jerk. <laughs> Anybody can do that. It's about being filled with compassion and love and yet standing on God's word and his standard. The world is going to be offended by that whole process. So we'll pick up with uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, next week at verse 35. We've, I've exhausted our time again. So why don't we stand and we'll pray and just take the challenge, you guys, to live according to God's word and his standard and embrace the idea, embrace it, that the world is going to despise you. It's a good thing. It's a good thing.